What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. You know who it is. Really appreciate you tuning in. Hey, listen, I kind of want to give a little primer here or a heads up. If you are looking for an episode just to kind of enjoy and maybe even give you a boost, which I know we, we try to do, and I, I hope we get to be that, but I don't know if this is the one, okay? And I say that because it's a really tough topic. It's one that can bring up a lot of emotions for some people. We're talking about grief today. Specifically, there's a few reasons why I wanted to talk about this topic and the most pressing is, you know, we're dealing with grief on a global level. Um, yes, it's part of the human condition, but now more than ever, there's a lot to grieve about uh, with the pandemic and the loss of loved ones and division that's happening in many different areas of our lives and a loss of a way of living to some extent. I mean, there's there's just a lot going on. So I thought it made sense to really tackle this topic. So it's a little more melancholy, uh, but we do try to get to some actionable skills on how to deal with grief, the science behind grief, a baseline for what grief is. And I will tell you, there are some quotes in here that will stick with me forever, specifically around why do we experience grief? I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. Email me, chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. So we are speaking with Dorothy Hollinger today. Dorothy is the author of a book called The Anatomy of Grief. 
She's much more than that. She was an academic psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for more than 23 years. She's maintained a private psychotherapy practice for 15 years. She graduated from Brown University with a degree in English and then earned her doctorate in psychology from the University of Michigan. Look, I could go on and on. Clearly, very intelligent person, uh, but also just really happy to have her on to give us her deep background on this topic. Before we jump into it, I really want to give a shout out to a number of you who recently decided to support us on Patreon. So Catherine N., Nick K., Meredith M., James C., Robert B., Stephen R., all of you have decided to support us starting in 2021. I can't tell you how much it means. You know, first of all, I fully understand how annoying it can be to kind of do a monthly thing. Keep in mind, it's only two to five bucks and you get reminders constantly. This is not like one of those things you put on your credit card and forget about. So if you want to support us and get some perks, you can go to patreon.com slash smart people podcast. One of the cool perks is you can ask our guests questions. So you could have asked Dorothy your questions on grief. Um, and really, you can ask them anything. We send out messages in advance of the interviews to our Patreon supporters. Uh, additionally, you get ad-free episodes. And as we get more and more of these, we're going to do some things. I think I'm going to do some Instagram lives with just our Patreon supporters. Might even create a Clubhouse on the Clubhouse app conversation for Patreon supporter type things. But all in all, for two, five bucks a month, you really help us out continue this process, continue to grow, continue to invest in this podcast so we can get the word out and help everybody have conversations to satisfy their curious mind. Patreon.com slash smart people podcast. All right, let's get into our conversation with Dorothy Hollinger as we talk about grief and her new book, The Anatomy of Grief. Enjoy. Well, Dorothy, first, I just want to say thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, I'm delighted to be here to talk with you, Chris. And as I was saying before we started, this is a topic we haven't directly covered in nearly 11 years. And partly, that's just a shame, and that's a miss on our part. But I'm going to tell you another piece, and I'm going to admit this to the listeners, that's a little scary for me, which is I have been fortunate enough, I have not dealt with a lot of grief in my life. And the scary part about that is I don't know how I will deal with it when it inevitably comes and it comes hard and fast and, and in a way that shakes me to my core. So I think that's part of the miss, but I think that's also the opportunity. And I'm really excited to discuss how we deal with it. So let's start here. You wrote okay. this book, The Anatomy of Grief. We're going to get into your background, but it just so happens that it's come out in a time where we are grieving globally. Yes. You know, something that I don't think happens often. Tell us a little bit from your perch with your expertise, what you see happening in the world today. It's huge. What we are going through as a nation and, and as a world, simply unprecedented. This is nothing that we've ever had any experience with. From my perspective, as both a person and a clinician and a researcher, and a psychologist. I know grief. Personally, I had a sister who died when I was a toddler, and I know what it did to my family. They couldn't grieve her death or the deaths of other babies and children properly. They 
didn't want to talk about it. So it was an undertow that kept us immersed in this chronic sorrow because the family couldn't mourn. And I treat bereaved patients in my practice of psychotherapy. You know, they work to face their grief. And of course, I recently, my book, The Anatomy of Grief, was published uh, last September. And this describes what happens to the human self of the bereaved, that it affects the brain. The brain is grief-stricken after a death of a loved one. It affects the heart. The heart feels like it's breaking, both metaphorical heart and sometimes there is something that's very rare that's called the broken heart syndrome, which we can get into later. And the body is hurting. Um, the body changes. You, you can't sleep well. Appetite changes. This is all in my background, and I do consider myself an expert on grief, and yet, oh, Chris, I was unprepared for the unimaginative challenges that COVID has and its massive death toll. This has been unimaginable. And so what's happened to our country, it's made death different. Patients are dying alone without family. You know, in some places, some cities, bodies are being stored in refrigerated trucks. We can't be physically together to gather together with our friends and loved ones. We can't touch each other, hold each other's hands, cry together. We're hurting. We're exhausted in this collective grief. And for 10 months, you know, we had someone who would not empathize and actively denied what was going on, the reality. Grief is hard enough under normal circumstances for people, but this really feels impossible. You said something there that I really hadn't planned on diving into, but it, it makes a lot of sense. You mentioned how if we have a leader in charge who, for better or worse, is always on, we're always hearing about it, Twitter, whatever, you know, and of course, we're talking about former President Trump, who is downplaying the situation who is not really telling it as it is, is uh -huh. not giving a platform to those who have lost people, who is almost downplaying the severity of something that took so many lives. How does that impact our ability to grieve or, or does it, does somebody that removed from us impact our ability on a personal level to grieve perhaps the death of, of somebody from COVID or even just the impact it's had on our lives? Oh, absolutely. It does. I, I think without that kind of person who's the head of our country be able to acknowledge what it is that we're going through makes our collective grief and our individual grief, if we've lost someone from COVID, there's a moment of like, what? I just lost somebody. And look at these numbers. Um, these, these are numbers that nobody is making up. Um, how could you not? I think it's a, it's a question of intense disbelief and being let down and saddened that we're not supported from those that are running our country. But, you know, to move a little bit away from that, we need to acknowledge that we've been denied traditional services. The public sharing of what we experience, the funeral rites, being with family and friends in together, communally, so we can mourn together and, and comfort each other after the loss of a loved one, we couldn't do this. And that was huge. We were denied this because of the fear of infection. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because grief is a human condition, right? It's, it's something all of us cannot escape. We all experience 
very early on in our lives and continually throughout, albeit to varying degrees. But you have a really unique perspective because, as you mentioned, not only as a psychologist have you worked on it, studied it, dealt with it, but you have seen it and studied it from the neurological level, the level of the impact on the body and the mind. And I want to understand it from that level. Let's just zoom out a little bit. How did you get to this place where you uh, want to write a book on grief? What brought that to the forefront? And was that part of your study as a psychologist for a long time? In terms of writing the book, no, it wasn't in my um, plans for the future. What I went through writing the book, because you know, writing any creative activity, dip into the unconscious and experience some intense feelings as part of your creative efforts. I experienced griefs that I hadn't done earlier in my life. And I, I frankly, I was shocked and, and just went with it, um, continued the writing and it changed me as really an amazing process. You know, do we actually have a formal definition of grief? Does that exist? Or is it just something we all imagine we know because we've experienced it? Well, I mean, Darwin called it, it's the universal emotion that affects all of us, humans and non-human animals. It's a universal emotion that I'm not sure that everyone accepts it, which is one of the things I point out in the book. And what I mean by accepts it, allow themselves to feel it. And part of the message of the book is to people to realize that this affects their entire self. They're all of their humanness, as it were, as I said a little while ago. You know, when the brain is grief-stricken, you thinking is off. You can't seem to remember things as well. And it feels heavy. Uh, the body, you can't sleep well. Food doesn't taste good, as I've said. But one of the things that may be helpful here, grief needs to be experienced. It needs to be felt. And we all experience it differently. It has its own timetable, and it's almost like it has a, an, it's an entity of its own, and we have to let it go where it goes. And now let's take a quick break for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and more like original entertainment and now podcasts. And recently, Audible just launched their newest plan, Audible Plus. With Audible Plus, you get full access to the Plus catalog, which is filled with thousands and thousands of select originals, audiobooks, and podcasts, including ad-free versions of popular shows, as well as exclusive series. Audible Plus connects you with tons of content that entertains, inspires, and informs. It's easy to find just the right listen, whether it's comedy, romance, suspense, true crime, science fiction, or fitness and wellness. And with everything you want to listen to all in one app, Audible Plus can truly become your playlist for life. I've even got a recommendation for you. Previous guest James Clear, episode 311, has his audiobook, Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones available on Audible. So check it out. It's narrated by James, and there's no better way to learn how to make time for new habits, overcome a lack of motivation and willpower, 
and how to get back on track when you fall off course. So if you want to listen to Atomic Habits or any of the thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of content on Audible, visit audible.com slash smart or text smart to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. Again, head over to audible.com slash smart or text smart to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. And now back to the episode. Well, you hit on something really important there, and it's also really difficult. The reason I say that is, you know, I subscribe to the theory, mostly, that the things that we do are primarily to minimize pain or maximize pleasure. And given that grief and the feeling of grief is probably one of the most intense feelings of pain we'll ever have, it's natural to want to subdue that, to push it away. But it sounds like what you're saying is really the only way through is to experience it, which again is counterproductive, right? We have to deal with the very uncomfortable emotion to get through it also seems why it might be so hard to make it to the other end. So does that sound correct to you? Is that the thesis that you're presenting? Yes, absolutely. And you know, um, people have to realize that they don't have to fear this profound sadness, that it's the price we pay for love, the sorrow that we feel. Um, it's as great as the love we had for a father who died or a mother, um, for just a loved one who died. And another very important aspect of this that I do stress in the book is to put grief into words because naming feelings changes brain activity in the, in the emotional brain, in the feeling brain from the amygdala to the thinking brain. It goes back up to the prefrontal cortex. Um, and putting words on feelings like this can make feelings of grief less intense. So it doesn't go away, but it's a way to manage it, to talk about it. And it's very hard to talk about grief because people don't really want to talk about grief. It's a very, very tough topic, a tough subject. We shy away from it. But I think knowing what it does to the brain, knowing what it does to the heart and the body, what, what possibilities there are, allowing it to be felt, um, knowing it has no timetable, all of this information, these strategies can help the bereaved on the path to healing and to and to also help calm the storms of grief. Because even when it does calm down, and it does, it really does for almost everyone, that it does come back and surges at times. And it's a surprise. Um, there can be a death anniversary. There can be uh, a song that reminds you of your mother. That was her favorite song. And all of a sudden you burst into tears. You know, one other thing that I think is, is helpful, this idea that we don't like to experience or feel negative feelings, we want to push them away. Well, you know, when an athlete is training, they know that they have to go through some pain in order to get to the goal that they're training for. It's, it's to be able to develop a tolerance for it. It really is important. Again, we all generally understand grief. I don't think that's what we're here to discuss. But the specifics of somebody who's researched it, who understands it, who's practiced it, who's heard it, that's what I want to dig into. So a part of this is, as you just alluded to, there are different kinds of grief. What are they? 
I, I do want to mention that these are not the diagnostic disorders that are the um, that are described in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual Five um, that was published by the American Psych- Psychiatric Association. Rather, these are to help be descriptive ways of trying to understand grief. And I organize these forms in three different categories, uh, most common, less common, and least common. And the most common category, many people do know about these two kinds of grief, um, as well as clinicians know about them. There's anticipatory grief. uh, When you're expecting the death of someone who's been ill for a long time or has a terminal illness and this is what we actually what we're feeling um, as a nation uh, as we're anticipating more deaths. So that's anticipatory grief. Ambiguous grief is the grief that the bereaved and family feel when a loved one disappears and and it's not known if they're alive or not and there's no deceased to bury. So there's a lack of closure there and there's always, I think, that tiny hope that no matter how many years that you'll see them again, that they'll reappear, that they somehow were able to come back to the family, to the bereaved. And then there's something called disenfranchised grief, which is, this hasn't been really talked about very much, or I think, or or known very much, that this is the grief a sibling often feels after a brother or sister dies. The grief for that living sibling isn't acknowledged like the parent's grief, because after all, they're the primary grievers. And then lastly, there's normal grief. Um, And I call this normal, and people do call it normal or resilient grief. The bereaved is able to experience grief fully. They accept the loss, um, and they adjust to life without the loved one. And the less common category, which, by the way, one of the less common forms of grief that I write about is delayed or postponed grief. And actually, this is what so many of the bereaved who have lost family members to COVID, they can't really feel it like they would if they had been with their loved one when they were dying, when they were able to have a funeral, a wake, or a burial. In fact, I had a patient who said, she had a sister who died and said to me, you know, Dr. Hollinger, I I just don't feel anything. I feel numb. And we talked about how her grief was postponed or delayed it just wasn't allowed any expression because she couldn't go to the funeral home. She couldn't go to the burial. And this is affecting so many of us. So, you know, even though I put this in the less common category, you know, it might be helpful to think of it now with what we're going through in this country as more common. And other ones are um, chronic grief. This is what people can experience when they really haven't grieved fully. It's you can call it or look at it as a continuing low-level awareness of the death of a loved one. It, and it, when it does emerge, it's it's pre, can be pretty intense. And then it goes back down. But the bereaved doesn't quite get back to the same level of an enjoyment of life that they had before the the loved one died. Um, and one other one that I do want to bring attention to because it's important. Um, This is forbidden grief. This happens when a child or someone in the family is told not to speak of the loved one who died. Usually it's a mother or a father and the the living parent will say, I just can't talk about 
your dad or I can't talk about your mom. And the child will internalize that and not be able to talk about it. And that's just sitting there. And it, it happened to several patients of mine who were able to access that forbidden grief and it poured out, actually. It was a mother who had committed suicide and the patient really was able to grieve that finally after 15 years or so, 20 years, I think, actually. It's a less common form of grief. And now a word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by NetSuite. If you're a business owner, you don't need to tell us that running a business is tough, but you might be making it harder on yourself than necessary. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. Stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch the spreadsheets and all the old software you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place, instantaneously. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of million in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Join the over 24,000 companies using NetSuite right now. So listen up. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com smart. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com smart. One more time, that's netsuite.com smart. And now back to the episode. I'm curious, what is happening in the body on a physiological level? when we experience grief? Is that, is that something we know? Because we all know what it feels like. And as you've mentioned, the impacts it has on us, everything from feeling numb, to just not willing to go on, not wanting to do anything. But do we know what's happening in terms of the chemicals or really that physiology? You know, there haven't really been a lot of studies um, of what's called non-complicated grief. There have been some of complicated grief. And, you know, this is actually in the least common category, this form of grief. And it affects, oh, probably between 5 and 10% of those people who are bereaved um, and about 2 to 3% in the, in the world. But this is um, an intense grief that no matter how long it's been since the death of the loved one, it really hasn't decreased, it's still almost as intense as soon after what it was soon after the death. And thoughts of the loved one keep intruding and, oh, there's a painful yearning for the deceased. And there's also a preoccupation with the belongings or photos of the deceased. Well, there was a study done by um, Mary Frances O'Connor and her colleagues uh, that looked at women with complicated grief and women without complicated grief. And the participants, it was an fMRI study, which is a neuroimaging study, and fMRI is a measure of the blood flow in the brain, which is an indirect indication of what the neurons, the activation of the neurons. So they were shown uh, photos of their deceased loved ones, and they were also shown uh, neutral photos. And underneath the photos were neutral words as well as grief-related words. And for the women with complicated grief, there was activation in a part of the brain that's called the nucleus accumbens. 
And this region of the brain is activated when we feel it's a reward region and when we feel satisfied, like when we're thirsty and we drink or we're hungry and we eat. Well, apparently this behavior of going back to photos of the loved ones or belongings of the loved ones constantly, basically trying to keep the loved one in the present. There's an inability to detach, to separate from them. And that can activate uh, this nucleus accumbens, this reward center. You know, it's this isn't really anything that has been researched as perhaps people in the grief community and clinicians and uh, would like to see more of what happens in the brain over a period of time. With the heart, well, you know, I mentioned that there's our metaphorical heart when we say, oh, my heart is breaking or my heart has a hole in it. My heart feels empty. But there's also the physical heart, the biological heart. And something that can happen with with people who have lost a loved one, and this is rare, is called broken heart syndrome. And what happens in that syndrome to the heart, there's a real occurrence to the heart, a physical response that the heart has. It balloons out, the left ventricle becomes larger. And so the bottom of the heart looks like it's round, and then the top, the aorta, is the narrow part of it. And that resembles um, a Japanese octopus catching part that's called a takotsubo. And in fact, when this was first discovered and named in Japan, it was called, it is, and it's still called takotsubo cardiomyopathy. But the good news about this is, number one, that it's rare, and number two, that it resolves in a number of weeks usually. And third, there's no lasting consequence from experiencing this. So that's what happens, can happen to the heart. To the body, um, you know, there's something that's called widow's weight, that when a woman uh, who's lost a husband loses a great deal of weight, there can be weight gain. Um, Sleep is really, really hard to get back to normal. So that's what can happen. Um, As humans, we are profoundly affected by the death of a loved one. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Neuro. Neuro makes functional gum and mints that help you to better your mind and do more. Imagine your health supplements in your pocket for whenever you go that you can take throughout the day instead of taking an entire daily dose in the morning. Loved by Olympians, engineers, academics, fitness enthusiasts, and people who are stuck working from home right now alike. The company was started by athletes who have backgrounds in neuroscience and chemistry. These patented cold-compressed gum and mints are gluten-free, sugar-free, vegan, and work much faster than drinks or supplements. The energy and focus products have been shown to improve brain performance in a pilot study done with BrainCo out of the Harvard Innovation Lab. The new Calm and Clarity use ingredients scientifically shown to reduce stress and stabilize mood. Because these are gum and mints, they're also easy to carry around, they taste good, and they give you fresh breath. Go to GetNeuro.com to order and better your state of mind now. That's G-E-T-N-E-U-R-O.com and use code SMARTPEOPLE for 15% off your first order. Again, head over to GetNeuro.com and use code SMARTPEOPLE for 15% off your first order. And now back to the episode. 
you know, this is kind of a meta question, but I've been wondering, like, why do we even need to experience grief? And what I mean by that is, why do you think it's even an emotion? Or as, as Darwin put it, the universal emotion. Because the reason I ask is the human experience would seem to be a lot better if we didn't have to experience grief. So what is the purpose? You know, it serves the purpose of what it means to lose somebody we love. You know, I, I think that we're wired, frankly, to experience grief. Um, I, I can give you an example of, can you believe a reptile that looked like um, he was, it was grieving um, that I write about in the book. It's from Barbara J. King's book, How Animals Grieve. So for a reptile to look as though, I mean, we have no idea whether this is really grief, but it looks like it. But it's something that I think is really necessary for us to be able to do, to feel, because what it does is take that loss and then incorporate it into our memories. And that is that is what really connects us to the person who died. They remain with us, but we have to go through the process of what it is that happens after they die and when we have gotten to the point where, as I say in the last chapter of the book, there's a bittersweet alchemy. We go from feeling this leaden sense of grief to being able to feel joy, to be able to remember them with, with delight, with, with laughter. Um, bittersweet, yes, of course, but we don't let go of them. And I think that's part of what this grief does that we feel. And we begin to, it's a way to begin detaching from that loved one, to be able to go through the amount of time it takes, as I said, it's different for everyone, and grief is like a chameleon. It can change form. You can have several forms of grief that overlap. But you go through, um, say, let's take a year. You go through each of those seasons, those holidays, without that loved one, and you become used to living without them. And this is critical to experience grief. And Julian Barnes, who's a British author, said, every love story is a potential grief story. And I think that's true. And if we don't grieve, you experience one of those less common or least common forms of grief, or it actually can come out in some depression, in anxiety, or even some physical symptom. Grief finds a way to be expressed. I think and I hope, and perhaps this will happen with what we're experiencing with COVID, that people won't be so afraid to talk about it. Why is that, that people are afraid to talk about grief? I mean, is it really just because it's uncomfortable and we don't want to experience it? Because it hurts. And, you know, sometimes when people don't know what to say to somebody who's lost a loved one, um, sometimes they don't say anything. But, for example, if someone who has lost, say, a, a brother and um, is talking to a friend and uh, the friend says, you know, I, I've been meaning to get in touch with your brother. And 
the living siblings, the friend says, um, oh, I guess you didn't, my brother died. Oh, I'm sorry, didn't you know? And it's like the bereaved has to comfort the person who they're telling this to because it might upset them. And that's kind of backwards, but that's what we've been doing. Not everyone, of course, not everyone, but to be able to know what to say. Well, what to say would be, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's too bad. And maybe even ask questions and not be afraid if if it's very close to the death of the loved one, if the bereaved begins to tear up because, you know, tears are, actually tears are amazing and they really do make us feel better. I talk about this uh, and describe it in the book. There are three kinds of tears. There are, you know, the regular tears that we have, the basal tears, which lubricate our eyes and there are reactive tears when we cut an onion or something and we start to cry. But there is also what are called emotional tears. And the chemicals that are in these tears are interesting. There's um, leucine and kephalin, which is related to endorphins. And this is why we feel good after we after we cry because of this particular chemical in tears. But I want to go back to what you said about the value of grief, because I really like the way you explain that. This idea that grief really etches the experience or the person in our mind. So we can have that history, that memory. And even more so, as I've been thinking through it, it makes sense when you say that grief is the price we pay for love. If we didn't have to pay that price, would we value love so highly? And I don't think we would. There's also a transformative um, process that happen, that can happen with grief. You know, crisis can create growth, and that's important. And that's part of being able to get to those memories that are loving memories of um, the deceased that are, as I said, bittersweet, but, but wonderful and joyous. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And I want to talk about strategies, because I know... Most likely people that tune in or a good deal of people that tune in are going through something that's causing them grief, are grieving. You know, again, it's part of the human condition. So we have you, an expert in this on the line. What are some strategies we can all implement to help us deal with the grief that is part of being human? Yes. I think what's really important is number one, to just acknowledge it, to just say, this hurts. I'm so sad, but it's okay. But also to try to put that grief into words, to talk to family, to talk to friends. I know that's very difficult to do, but the more that that happens, the more that activity in the brain can change. And, and it, it begins, the brain begins to have new connections. Um, as the person gets used to living without the loved ones. But to talk about it um, is really important. And I think it also keeps it external as well as internal. It takes the internal sadness, the pain, and and externalize it in a sense and in a way so that grief can be more tolerable. And to understand, as I said a few minutes ago, that with pain, um, this kind of pain, there is growth lives change. People aren't the same person that they were with the loved one when the loved one was living. That's gone. And I think just to 
not to be frightened by it. Um, Because I think sometimes when we get upset, we go, what is happening? Oh my gosh, uh, am I okay? And yes, you are okay when you're feeling grief. It's normal. It's natural. Another way of saying it's the price we pay for grief. The loved one is deserving of this. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those. I think those are some strategies we can all use at various times in our lives, regardless of the specifics of the situation, but when we are facing grief. So I really appreciate that. I want to wrap this up. As we mentioned, you have this book out. It's called The Anatomy of Grief. And I also want to ask, is there anywhere else you're writing or places we can find you, perhaps those that are looking for additional resources or just to learn more about this topic? Yes. Um, the website for the book is dorothyphollinger.com French slash author. And I re- did write um, two blogs last summer, well, last, last September, actually, about pandemic grief. And that was uh, on the Yale University blog and um, a blog I wrote for Psychology Today about, which we didn't talk about today, The Reckoning, Death, Trauma, and Grief in the Time of COVID-19. And in that blog, I talked about the frontline workers, which I think is so important for us to acknowledge and to thank and to realize what it is they're going through, because it's dreadful. It is. Well, Dorothy, I just want to say thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was uh, wonderful to talk with you, Chris. Appreciate you sticking around, and I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dorothy Hollinger. Dorothy's book, The Anatomy of Grief, can be found wherever books are sold. All right, we'll close out the episode with some quick housekeeping. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at Smart People Pod. And if you really enjoy the show and you want to support us monetarily, head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, if you want to support the show at no cost to you, just go ahead and leave us a review wherever you downloaded the show. And the last bit here, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we will see you all next episode.